Welcome to Free the Greeks, a history podcast on ancient Greece and the Peloponnesian War. Episode 1, Awake to the Classics. And now your host, Joshua Taylor. 404 BC. In the highlands of the Persian satrapy of Phrygia stands a small but affluent village. And somewhere in that village stands a modest homestead. Word of mouth amongst the villagers is that its sole occupants are a man and woman. They keep to themselves. Once in a while, the man had been seen outside. Near middle age, for certain, but his physique could bring contention to that assessment. He was handsome to a fault, one might even say pretty, but his beauty had been worn raw by his past experiences. To those who had been in the vicinity to see and hear, he spoke with a Hellenic dialect, although with a lisp, similar to that of the Ionians of the coast, but he wore his hematian, his cloak, over his chiton, his tunic, with a pride in his demeanor that marked him as someone who had once been of a higher office. The woman was younger than himself and wore coal around her eyes, Ionian but not a wife, what the man would call a hetaira, a courtesan. She kept him company. This was the information that soon came back to the scouts who reported to the cadre of soldiers encamped outside the village. The man and woman celebrated that evening, imbibing in drink and song and lovemaking. Word had it that he had received a message from the satrap Pharnabazus himself. He lowered his guard and partook in pleasure, confident that he found his opportunity to rectify his current circumstances. He and his attire took to the bed, and whilst he slept, the soldiers entered the village, their panoply gently ringing in the cold night air. Kindling and straw were placed around the perimeter of the house, and immediately ignited. The soldiers formed a line just a small distance from the house, and awaited as the fumes seeped their way through the lintels and threshold. The woman emerged from the smoke first, barely dressed. The man soon followed, dressed only in a tunic, but poised with a dagger in his right hand, ready to take on his assailants. They had no intention to engage him. In a matter of seconds, a volley of arrows were loosed in tandem with the salvo of javelins. The majority of the projectiles hit their mark. A half-human hedgehog, the man slumped to the ground and bled out onto the cobbles. The soldiers only approached the man to confirm he had breathed his last. Satisfied, they turned and vanished into the darkness. A good night's work. According to Plutarch, that Greek biographer of the, of the second century AD, the Hetaira's name was Tamandra. She stripped down and enshrouded the perforated form of her lover in her robe. She then returned him to the burning homestead and tossed his body into the inferno. The next morning, the villagers would awaken to blackened rubble on a bed of ash and no sign of the man or the woman. They could only speculate as to what happened here. But little did they know that on this spot, the final blows had just been delivered to a nearly three-decade-long conflict. For 27 years prior to this ancient gangland hit job, the city-states, or poles, of the, of the Peloponnesian League voted to declare war on the Delian League, the official title of what they considered to be the Athenian Empire. Headed by the militaristic polis of Sparta, a society renowned for its elite warrior culture, each member of the Peloponnesian League had its own desire to see Athens fall, but to all and sundry who would join their cause, their official objective was to free the Greeks. 
I hope you enjoyed my little prologue, a tease for what is to come. Those familiar with the history of classical Greece probably have a good idea as to the identity of the man who was assassinated in that hit job, as I have said. He is but one of the many fascinating figures that we will encounter and follow in the episodes to come. I chose to title this podcast as Free the Greeks because, according to Thucydides and every historian afterwards, the main aim of Sparta and its allies to make war with Athens was to free the Greeks. Doubtless, this was also the objective of Athens in its defense and in its own aim towards the war. It is also, in my humble opinion, a catchy title that underscores the complexity of the subject. So welcome to Free the Greeks. I am your host, Joshua Taylor, and I will be your guide on this odyssey of the 27-year-long conflict known as the Peloponnesian War. This conflict took place during the era known, known as Classical Greece, defined by experts as occurring between the 5th and 4th century before Common Era, that is, the 500s and 400s BC. BC, before Common Era, they're the same thing. One has religious connotation, and the other one has secular connotation. They both demarcate themselves as beginning from the birth of Christ. The most primary source of the, for the Peloponnesian War is that of the historian Thucydides, you could say he was the first embedded reporter, having been a strategos or general in the first few decades of the war. He had failed at a crucial military objective and was ostracized, by that I mean the official use of the term as defined by the ancient Athenians, for ten years, where he spent his time chronicling away the minutiae of the conflict. He passed several years before its bitter end in 404 BC, and his work was picked up by Xenophon and other historians. His chronicle aptly titled The History of the Peloponnesian War. If you are here to indulge more in the history than the narrative, and therefore don't care about spoilers per se, I recommend picking up a copy. It's actually well written, not without some bias on the author's part of course, but it gives dimension to a dusty history. For a modern interpretation, Donald Kagan's The Peloponnesian War is unchallenged in its meticulous research, while still having a stoic but engaging narrative momentum. These are but two of the sources I have used for this podcast. Among others, I have is the research of Paul Cartledge on the Spartans, the various YouTube copies of classical historian Bettany Hughes' BBC documentaries I've gobbled up over the years. Also throw in some Herodotus for historical background on Persia and the collected works of Sophocles and Aristophanes, the latter being in indispensable for its political satire on Athenian politics during the Peloponnesian War. I also recommend Anthony Everett's great popular history of the period, The Rise of Athens. And, of course, I give props to my second-year university textbook on ancient Greece. I got a little sidetracked there discussing my sources, but I want to go back to the period in question. Some might be asking why this particular era of Greek history, Josh? Well, I think the Trojan and Persian Wars and Alexander the Great is commonly known enough in popular culture. Thanks to the graphic novel 300 by Frank Miller and its subsequent film adaptation and sequel 300 Rise of an Empire, and going before that Wolfgang Peterson's Troy, and arguably even before that Hercules' A Legendary Journeys and its spin-off Xenia Warrior Princess. Even Disney's Hercules. But, you know, in all seriousness, this is the view most people outside historical circles have of ancient Greece. It is safe to say I will, not, I will get no argument that the historical value of these texts is less than accurate, and that's perfectly fine. As an amateur historian, I find these films, if viewed by a curious mind, it will foster interest in the actual history, rather than degrade it as some tend to believe. I give critical mercy to 300, the graphic novel, in particular because its narrative is framed by a storyteller and who is an eyewitness describing the events of the Battle of Thermopylae as if it was Homeric myth chock full of great heroes and villains. 
There's actually some dead-on accuracy with Spartan culture in the film, from how the phalanx work, to the agogi training, to the geography of Sparta, to his traditions and the laconic one-liners that are straight from Herodotus. Yes, a Persian envoy actually said, the full might of the Persian Empire is upon you. Our arrows will blot out the sun. And yes, a Spartan soldier did actually respond, who is one of the 300 equals serving King Leonidas, then we shall fight in the shade. For those not in the know, laconic, a verb that refers to being concise or expressing in few words, comes from laconia, which is reference to the Spartan homeland in the Peloponnese. In short, the Spartans were kind of quippy badasses. They were also xenophobic and practiced an early form of eugenics that sound like they were pulled from the pages of Mein Kampf. And of course, Peloponnese being the word of the day, if you were referring to the southern peninsula, of what we know today as mainland Greece. As for 300 and its sequel, I give the film less kudos for its 19th century style colonial, nay, racist, dehumanized depiction of the Persian Empire. It may surprise to many that the Persians and the Poleus of Hellas, that is, of Greece, were not that different in terms of tyranny and slavery. Needless to say, this era of history, including the Trojan War, which is what little Greeks and Romans were raised on for centuries, has been somewhat romanticized. If you look somewhere else in history, uh, the most bloodiest battles of English history, for example, was the Battle of Towton in 1461, during the three-decade-long period we know as the Wars of the Roses. Today, there is a lot of conjecture and debate about the legitimacy of Henry Tudor, who took the crown from Richard III in 1485, and this is only because the period through, though it's aggrandized by Shakespeare, is hardly ever talked about because it was not a glorious part of English history. The discovery of Richard III's body and his internment has created dialogue as it suggests that he may have been usurped, a fact possibly leading to a cover-up by the Tudor propaganda machine. But that is, again, conjecture. But like the Peloponnesian War, the Wars of the Roses is lacking the chivalry, usually associated with medieval warfare, and the Peloponnesian War, unlike the mythic Trojan War and the patriotic fervor and defiance against tyranny sentiment associated with the Persian Wars, the Peloponnesian War is classical Greece at its ugliest. Before its commencement in 431 before Common Era, the past 50 years saw the, fifth, saw the city-states of Hellas unite together to dislodge the Persian threat. It has seen the first democratic experiment being carried out, the birth of Western philosophy and culture, the establishment of theater, sculpture, and an explosion of commercial enterprise never seen before. During all this time and before the gods and the mores they conveyed to the Hellenes were withheld and respected. Before the Peloponnesian War and to an extent the Persian Wars, Hellenic warfare consisted of two rival poles sending us a small force of soldiers, all of them owning their own land and could afford a bronze helmet, cuirass, and armor with greaves, as well as a circular shield called a hopla, which gave these citizen soldiers their name, hoplites. Armed with a spear and a small sword, these hoplites would form a division called a phalanx, where shields were held high so each man in the line was protected on the right by their fellow soldier's shield. Spears thrust outward, they would engage the rival polis phalanx and thrust their spears while pushing against each other until enough men were wounded or killed and the opposing force would be driven off the battlefield. This bulldozer technique was perfected by the Spartans but was used in essence by all the Greeks of the classical period. After these skirmishes had resolved, terms would be offered to the losing side and then after some concessions, peace would be made and the gods given their proper due. This is the way of things for the Greeks. But with the Peloponnesian War, this well-buried pretense that had been placed below in the interest of pragmatism rose to the surface and the virtues of the gods were forgotten or conveniently ignored. The Greeks, the Hellenes, as I will continue to refer to them, were indulged in a long period of skirmishes, battles, false pieces, atrocities, and betrayals. Even the eventual victor of the war would be a shell of its former self. In essence, the Peloponnesian War is the first modern war. 
in his history of the Peloponnesian War, Thucydides writes, as for this present war, even though people are apt to think that the war in which they are fighting is the greatest of all wars, and when it's over, to relapse again into their admiration of the past, nevertheless, if one looks at the facts themselves, one will see that this was the greatest war of all. The greatest war of all. It makes one think of the war that would end all wars, the First World War. In fact, the Peloponnesian War was the First World War. Its theater went as far away west as Sicily and southern Italy and as far east as the shores of the Black Sea. In the final years of the war, the plethora of naval battles took place in and around the Sea of Marmara and the Hellespont, the Dardanelles, where 2,000 years later the Battle of Gallipoli took place. If you think of the First and Second World Wars, Vietnam, or as I mentioned, the dynastically inspired bloody battlefields of the Wars of the Roses, or the American Civil War, the reality of long-standing conflict was absent of glory and absent of righteousness. But that doesn't make it any less intriguing or exciting. The Peloponnesian War is populated with larger-than-life figures such as Pericles, Archidamus, Cleon, Socrates, Aristophanes, Nicias, Demosthenes, Brasidas, Gylippus, Alcibiades, Aspasia, the only women I have in this list, but we'll get into that later, and Lysander, as well as earth-shaking events such as the Siege of Athens, or more topically, the Great Plague of Athens, or the Battle of Sphacteria, or the Sicilian Expedition, or the Battle of Argonusae. The Peloponnesian War is exciting as historical narrative as, say, the Wars of the Roses or the late Roman Republic or the Civil War, because of real people making real decisions that have great consequences, good or bad. Like any doorstop fantasy novel, it's a rich layered world with intriguing politics and twists of fate. And yes, there are some brilliant tactics and compelling maneuvers used in the myriad land and sea battles that took place over the war. But it has, but it has nothing to do with intervening gods or Homeric heroes fighting for honor. Instead, it's real folk fighting for what they believe is freedom and justice, everybody wrong and everybody right. It's not an epic cycle at all, it's more akin to a Greek tragedy. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Peloponnesian War. No doubt there has been extensive historical research on this period for about, oh, 2,000 years, but it seems to be consensus that the Peloponnesian War is separated into three phases. The first phase is the Archidamian War, 431 to 421 BC so named for Archidamus, one of the two kings of Sparta at the time. Yes, Sparta had two kings. Phase 2, the Peace of Nicias and the Sicilian Expedition, chronicling the events from 420 to 413 BC. And then the final phase of the war, Phase 3, is known as the Ionian War, from 412 to 404 BC. While this has been an introduction to the show, the next two episodes will be establishing an understanding of the cultures of Athens and Sparta, because Peloponnesian League, or Delian League, and ambitious players like Corinth and Thebes, the Peloponnesian War is really a tale of two polices, Athens and Sparta. The naval power versus the land power, progressivism and mercantilism versus conservative slave-based economy, etc. Or simply democracy versus oligarchy. So before the first spears are thrown at Epidamnus, I want you all to have a clear understanding who the Athenians and the Spartans, and to an extent, who the Hellenes really are, or were. The following epi episodes will chronicle the three phases of the war, but with multiple episodes for each phase. The final episode will be the aftermath following the Battle of Aegospotami, and the lingering effects of, a, of the war on Hellenic culture, as well as the rest of history, going into the future. So that is what is to come on Free the Greeks. I will be setting up an Instagram account with maps and pictures and other things relevant to the show that you might find useful or interesting. While history is a major passion of mine, and having the chance to branch out on my own and develop this podcast which has me very, very excited uh, for the weeks to come, I want to emphasize that I'm not a historian. 
So if you hear anything that may not sync up with other research you've encountered, I will have a contact set up and I will be happy to make the correction. In the end though, I am here to educate and entertain you. So place your head into that Corinthian helmet, pour your libations to the gods, and march into history with me. This is Joshua Taylor, and thank you for listening.